Hello and welcome back to Alpha Reviews. Um, so I don't usually do intros for this pod anymore, but I felt like this guest deserved a proper introduction. So, Matthew Mungo is an Oscar-winning, six-time winning makeup artist and above all, a legend of his craft, having worked with stars such as Glenn Close and Jack Nicholson. He sat down with me for the first time ever to have a proper open interview where we, dis- where we discuss his upbringing, how he got into the industry, and he even got a little bit personal what it's like to be gay in the 1980s Hollywood. Matt did have some mild technical difficulties here and there, uh, most of which aren't noticeable due to the art of editing, but um, there are some that are still noticeable. However, the pod is still very listenable, so I really hope you can excuse those few moments here or there. But above that, thank you very much to Matthew Mungle if you're listening, and onwards with the show. So you're all right? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, mate. Long time no see. You're looking great. You're looking good. Yeah. Um, you know, after after knee surgery and replacement, rather, and you know, a little bit of recovery, I'm fine. <laughs> knee surgery? What, what what happened there? Replacement on my left knee. You know, it's it's standing on the feet for so many hours doing a makeup well a lot of makeup. oh my god is that from like a lot of heavy lifting as well that kind of goes down to your knees and it does it all yeah molds and also just our kits on set i don't know we abused ourselves when we were younger i'll just kind of go right into it as because i've already recorded a pre-intro so just kind of who is Matthew Mungle? So kind of like, where were you born? What was your upbringing like? Kind of like, where did you kind of live around as a child? Okay. So my name is Matthew Mungle, mm-hmm. Matthew William Mungle. So I was born in Durant, Oklahoma in on October the 26th, 1956, to uh, Jean and Becky Mungle, who were farmers, were farmers until they passed away. Um, in Atoka, Oklahoma. So I was basically born in Durant, but raised in Atoka, Oklahoma, with four siblings, uh, my my two older brothers, my older sister, and my younger sister. And Marjoretta and I, Marjoretta is my younger sister, grew up together, basically, because the other three were a little older, and they went off to college. But when I got interested in monsters, probably about when I was four, five or six, I mean, it was early. It was fantasy things. It was monsters, et cetera, et cetera. My sister, I would have my sister stay up with me to watch monster movies because I'd get scared. And I'd watch <laughs> so, so I would just pull her along, you know, to, to watch Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Bride of Frank, whatever on television, black and white. And you have to understand, I grew up in Atoka, Oklahoma, population 4,000. So we only had two television stations at the time. So wow. when, when um, they do the Saturday night movies or something like that, they do monster movies. So, and, and I love that because it was their way of cheap, you know, entertainment, stuff like that, because they were black and white, 1931. Uh, the original universal uh, monsters and basically so that's what i grew up on and then i saw um 
when I was maybe about eight years old or so, I saw uh, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. And that was Tony Randall. And I was amazed at how William Tuttle turned him into all those characters. And I just didn't understand it until I started doing a little my own research in books and stuff because of course we didn't have the internet then so um uh i found out that william tuttle did the makeup and that he actually shaved his head and eyebrows because they had it that in live magazine i think so that got me more intrigued and i just I just started doing makeup and got interested in makeup. One of the first books I bought was probably Dick Smith's uh, do it yourself makeups. And I still have it today. And just, it was my Bible growing up. It was so much. I'd order everything I could at the time with the money I had, you know, doing chores and stuff, crepe wool, nose putty, et cetera, et cetera, from New York from uh, Alcone uh, Makeup Supply in New York. Funny story about that, I'll tell you later. Anyway, um, so I just started doing it, you know. And the second book I bought was um, Richard Corson's Makeup. Anyway, that was really my Bible because it was a hardback book. I still have it over here with my name very neatly written in it. That book, I didn't get until I was about the fre a freshman in high school. And I do my book reports. I do everything on makeup. Uh, graduated from high school, uh, went to Oklahoma State University. Well, while I was still in high school, I worked for the theater owner there, the movie theater, owner, who was uh, the father of one of my classmates, Teresa Thompson. And the theater was the Thompson Theater. So, and I, that was the theater. I'd see everything. And of course, that movie theater would get it two or three months after it was released. So we'd have time to, to study that. But yeah. I, working for him in my junior and senior year, because I'd dress up in makeup, costumes, whatever I needed to do to promote a show there. The first one was... Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And I dress up like a chimp. I put the makeup on in the morning at five o'clock, went there, knocked on the door. He answered the door. He was just flabbergasted that I looked like one of the apes on the, the film and says, come on in, gave me a sign. You know, the whole day I, I was in character. I never talked to anybody, never let him on to who I was, walked around town. And you have to understand Atoka, Oklahoma was only two streets. So up and down, everybody knew the Mongols in Atoka, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And they knew who I was. But at that day, I felt like an actor because they didn't know who I was. I was under makeup. I was acting. I was doing makeup. It was a dream come true. Didn't take the makeup off until about 10 o'clock that night. And John Thompson, the owner of the theater, comes in with a $15 check. And it was my first check money I made doing makeup and I was $15. I was over the moon. I was over the moon. It probably cost me $20 to do it, but it doesn't matter. It was my first paying gig. Anyway, graduated from high school, went to Oklahoma State University. As soon as I walked into uh, the scenic designer's 
office. His name was Jerry Davis. I had my portfolio that I put together during my high school years of all the things I'd done, costumes, makeup, went into him, showed it to him. He opened it, looked at it, looked at me, looked at the book again, looked at me and said, you did all this in high school? And I said, yeah, I just love to do it. He said, son, we're going to put you to work. So the first thing I did was the first month, it was skin of our teeth building costumes, a dinosaur, and a elephant, I think, and a, and a donkey or something costumes for um, skin of our teeth, Thornton Wilder. It was a play that we were putting on the university. And I just loved going to OSU because one, it was a transition from uh, high school to the real world. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I met so many friends there, loved theater, but um, but in my uh, freshman uh, uh, freshman sophomore year, the summer between my sophomore year and uh, my junior year, I went to uh, Houston, Texas. I always wanted to work in an amusement park. So I worked at the amusement park that summer of 1977. And that there's a little film that came out that year. It was called Star Wars in on Memorial Day weekend. I must have seen it. Might have heard of it. Two or three. I mean, you know, and all at once it was just like fire. It, you know, nobody knew how it was going to go. And all at once it was just, it just cute. I was amazed to see that. And I'd always loved film anyway, just watching movies. I get caught up on them. I don't judge the makeup. I go for the entertainment. So that came out later that summer. I hear that Rick Baker is going to be there at a, um, uh, at a sci-fi convention. So, Oh my God, I get my portfolio. I take it down. You know, I watch him talk about star Wars and mass making and prosthetics and stuff. And then afterwards he did uh, questions and answer. There are so many monster kids that summer that met him that became makeup artists out in Hollywood. It's, it's mind blowing because that was the beginning of makeup effects. It really was. It was an exciting time for everybody. Anyway, I met him. And of course I said, yeah, he said, you got any plans? I said, yeah, I think we're gonna, I'm going to move to, and I, at that point, I was not even, to, I was still 20. I hadn't, um, yeah, I said, I'm, I, I'm thinking, I, I really want to move to Hollywood uh, in the fall or the beginning of the year and go to the Elegance International School. He said, no, don't go there. It's not a very good school. Go to Joe Blasco Makeup Center. So I said, okay, great. You know, then we shook hands. And then I immediately went out to the phone, called my uh, sister-in-law and just, just went on and on about what I'd done. And then after that call, I called Joe Blasco Makeup Center. And I, I got all the information for the, for the school and everything. They sent it to me and I was off. I mean, I just in heaven, you know, that summer was a great summer for me. Uh, later in the fall, registered at the Joe Belasco Makeup Center. I finished out my semester at OSU per my dad. He said, well, if you finish out this semester, then you, in the fall, at, during Christmas, you can move to Hollywood. I said, deal, deal. Well, I got Fs, all Fs except for my scenic design oh. class. 
that semester, which was fine because I didn't, I got what I needed out of high school. So, I mean, uh, college, you know, and I was moving on. So here we go. It comes December. I load my car up, got there, registered at the school, met Joe, and I was just off. By fr- uh, uh, That was December. In February, we started classes, uh, and it was like a sponge, just just soaking up every moment of of everything I could with makeup, whether it be straight makeup, whether it be uh, prosthetics, whether it be uh, laying a beard, whatever. I was just entrenched with that. Graduated from the school, and he immediately put me to get to work um, teaching for him uh, because he knew that I loved what I did. I loved makeup. And then from there on, he would, he would, uh, Joe would refer me to jobs and I'd get uh, experience through that. And then I just decided, you know, I don't want to teach anymore. I want to go out and really do it. So I did. Joe was a little upset with me because I was, I was his best teacher. I was leaving, but it was okay. I was I'm moving on. I was moving up because every, every step that I, I made, I think was quite a bit calculated. I may have overstepped a couple of steps, but I just learned that in your career, you need to take one step at a time. If you take two steps, you're going to fall back three steps. So I, I just really learned a lot when I got out of the school from teaching and just went out into the world and started working. So, and then the rest was just history as they say. So in terms yeah. of your upbringing, cause obviously makeup, um, costume design, production design, they're kind of stereotyped to be effeminate things. And you find an awful lot of women working in those departments. So kind of growing up when you did in South America and such a small town, h- how was everyone's kind of attitude to what you're passionate about? Cause it seems like you never really made a secret about what you love doing. No, not, there was never a secret. I was the weird one. I mean, I got called names and stuff like that. Not as, not as bad as, as kids do to other kids, but kids can be brutal. You know, it, mm. it did hurt feelings a lot. But now that I'm 66 years old, I look back and I go, ha, fuck you. Excuse me. <laughs> well, like I suppose where, you were probably the most successful one out of those. Lot. Got married the day after you graduated from high school, you had kids and stuff and, and you earn what? So anyway, I, I retribution, but you know, there are some mental scars there. Of course there are uh, in, in all of our lives. I think we go through that and we have to, yeah. and we come out of it or we don't and we grow and we learn by each, each little experience we have. So did I answer it? Did I? Yeah, I suppose you did. Just kind of like more now, like what were like your mom and dad's attitude about it as you were oh. growing up? That was another thing. They thought it was a hobby. I always oh. got a hobby. And that's money on crepe wool and latex and what? what? But then I got the job at, at the theater and they go, oh, he's got a job at least, you know. Dad wanted me to go out and shovel uh, cow shit, you know. It was, I, it was an upbringing, I must say. I was raised on a farm. The, the farm, it was a dairy rather. And we would uh, milk 250 Guernsey cows a day. So it was a big working farm. 
you know, I was born into that. I was showing cows when I was a kid, but it just never was for me. I just never liked it. Brother, my older brother, my oldest brother never liked it, but my older brother Mason did. And that's, he, he kind of took over the farm after my dad got old, especially after my dad passed away. And my sister's still there and everything, but all my siblings are still in Oklahoma. So my mom and dad thought it was just a hobby when I was growing up. And, oh, you know, he's going to continue in jazz catching down in Hollywood. And then you're going to turn around and, and see you can't make it there and, and move back. The time that they came out to visit me and I get a call, I think we'd gone out. No, no, I actually got a call. It was a landline that I had in my house. I actually got a call from Orson Welles' travel agent because I was going to do a job for Joe Blasco putting a nose on Orson Welles. As soon as they heard that, they go, so, because that's his, that, that's their error, you know, uh, of, 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 of time is Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and everything. They go, okay, so he's doing well. So, you know, and I think that's really when they realized it. And of course, after I won the Academy Award, that was it. That that they knew I had arrived. You know. Was that was so was it kind of the Orson Welles gig that kind of was that the first moment where they finally took it seriously as a profession and not just a hobby that you'd grow out of one day? Uh, I think I think the the first time was Orson Welles. And I moved to to uh, Hollywood in December 1977. And that was in 1980. So it was, I'd been out there for three years, three solid years working. You know, they supported me, thank God. Uh, they supported me a little bit, you know, and rent was very cheap. So I think that's that's when they really realized it. Every time I'd do a job, I'd send them pictures and keep in touch with them, all that stuff. So they they knew it was it was my love, it was my passion. Yeah. So were they kind of willing to put their feelings aside because they knew it was what you loved and they cared more about what you were uh, doing rather than? Yeah, not so much my mom, but my dad was such an influence on me he he taught me work ethics which really came in handy when i moved to hollywood you know you 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 accept a job you do that job you know you don't flake out you 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 put a budget down you do that budget you don't go back and ask for more you know you you work as hard as you possibly can and you love what you do and i i just I took that to heart when I moved out and started doing something. I just, it was my passion. You know, it was just, my cousin once told me when I was moving out to Hollywood, she said, you're, you know, you know how lucky you are. And I said, well, I said, well, I've always looked. She said, look, people usually have no idea at your at 21 at the time, what they're going to do in their life. And you've already figured it out when you were 10 years old mm. and you are so lucky. And it just, it hit me at that point. Like, damn, I, I am, this is my passion. This is my love. This is my profession. That's kind of similar with me where I'm quite lucky. I, I turned 21 in less than a month uh -huh. now, but 
I kind of since I was like 17, 18, I had a very set career, but um, I still know people like now, even in this day and age where they, you know, there's so much out there, the possibilities are endless. You still have people going into their thirties and their forties kind of still not knowing what they want to do. But that being mm-hmm. said, did there not ever come a time where, cause obviously, you know, it's a cutthroat industry. You get a lot more no's than you do. Yes. And it, it can be emotionally exhausting and you have really bad days where things go awful and you have 10 people screaming at you. Was there not ever a time where you gave it up, considered giving up, falling back on something else? You know, I, I really can't think of any. There were ups and downs, as you say. There were really some down times and there was really some up times. But I never, I never doubted what I wanted to do. And I kind of, you know, after I got mad, no, you don't like it, but, uh, I really started thinking about, well, look, this is an opportunity for you to learn, you know, about what wrongs you did on this job. What did you do right on this job? You know, so each, I mean, it's, it was a life lesson. I basically grew up in Los Angeles. I met my husband there in 1979. We've been together for 44 years. I, you know, I, I, we grew up together in Los Angeles. He was an accountant and he, he became a makeup artist after 10 years after we were together. And, and it, it was, was it you that got him into makeup? Uh, he, he came out, he was an accountant. They asked him, he was doing temp jobs and they finally asked him to move on up in his accounting department. He goes, I came home, loosened his tie through his, his briefcase down on the table and said, and I was in the lab doing stuff at our home. And he said, can you teach me this shit? I looked at him and I just smiled and said, I've been waiting 10 years for you to say this. And I said, now with him, he says, I was a horrible teacher. I'm a really good teacher for everybody else. But because he was my, uh, my partner in, in, in everything, um, I don't know. It was a different thing. And I said, well, here, you need to go and, and learn from this person or go take this class and stuff like that, you know, um, and learn from people. By that, by that time, I was already kind of established to the point on low-budget horror films that I was working constantly and commercials and, you know, because the producer would know this and this would the director would pass me on. But so my career was already pretty pretty much full steam ahead by that point and and that was 1978 that he came in and did that so the first job that i put put him on with us was william freakin directing the guardian now william freakin was my ultimate hero obviously he directed the exorcist and dick smith did the makeup for the exorcist so i mean what a dream come true for a fanboy, for a monster kid to work with your idol, you know, William Freakin. They say, be careful uh, who you work with the idols and what you think about them. But he was pretty good. I had heard a lot of bad things about him. But when I went in, he was nothing but kind to me and very encouraging. And and he, I think because he knew that I had, he saw that I had a passion for makeup because I put my whole soul and heart in everything he wanted me to do that we got along extremely well 
And then later on in years, um, I worked with him a couple of times here and there, and he came in on CSI, which I had already been established in CSI. And he's there, and we looked at each other. I said, Billy, great to see you again. And it was just, it gave me a big hug and such a sweet man, you know, all these people. So kind of being, you seem like somebody who lives very unapologetically yourself, and I love and respect that for you. But being in the 70s and early 80s you know being an openly gay man who's into who's very effeminate who's into makeup i know for some people this is a really sensitive subject but if you don't mind me asking was that ever a problem for you did you experience much hate kind of growing up you know you say effeminate but when i was working and especially joe blasco who who is also gay and he taught me so many freaking things about the industry. And one of the most important things he taught me when I first moved to Hollywood was you never let anybody know your personal lives and especially that you're gay. Because you would think that Hollywood's open and everything, it, it, it still is not about gay, gay artists. I mean, there's a lot of prejudice for And I, I still don't understand. Because it's a, it's a created medium that just so wide open, and I didn't really come out to myself. I knew I was gay when I was a kid. Looking back, you know, but I didn't really come out to myself until I had a girlfriend in college, and at one point I said to her, I said, "You know what? I, I mean, I like you as a person, but." Every time we're together and we're out in public, I'm always looking at men. She said, well, why don't you go to one of the therapists at this college? You know, and they're, they're therapists in training, et cetera. And you get it for free and stuff. So I went quite a few times, you know, cry sessions and stuff like that. And, and there was the last session that we had. It wasn't planned to be the last session, but I walked in. I looked at him and you said, I, I said, you know what? I'm gay and I'm very proud of it. And I, I'm just now accepting myself. And this was when I was, uh, I think I was still 19 or 20, I think. Uh, so I was rather a late bloomer, so to speak. And once I decided that or accepted myself, the world was my oyster. I mean, I just blossomed. You know, and I see kids today that are, uh, I don't want to talk about this because I'm very emotional. So anyway. Oh, bless you. Anyway. Well, I can talk about my gay life, but about kids today and stuff like that. So mm. anyway. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's nice for you to open up like that. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize it would get you that emotional, but um, no, I think. Something to me. Thank you for doing that, but uh, you know, it's a. It's, oh, bless it's, you, man. So, um, anyway, um, once I decided, or I had at least accepted myself for who I was, and I was in the theater department in college. Come on, there's so many gay people there, you know, and that's when everybody's ex. ex 
experimenting and I, this was 1975 I started college you know and I didn't really accept myself until was it 76 or 70 it's it's got to be the beginning of 77 I think must have been so I was 20 years old so once I did that and accepted all that my world just opened up I mean it just exploded and and that's when I said you know what I gotta shit or get off the pot here sorry uh I gotta move to Hollywood I gotta do this you know and thank God for Joe Blasco because he became my mentor my my friend my, my professional guide through this profession so um so once he told me that, I really, and to tell you the truth that John and I, when we got together and when I started my career, I, we never, ever had makeup or hair uh, artist friends that we would socialize with. Now, there are a couple of upset, uh, uh, exceptions to that, but we never did associate with who we worked with. And I've always been uh, complimented about Matthew. You, you're always, you get in, you do the job, you don't make waves and you leave and you do a great job. So what a compliment to give an artist that, you know, that you're not standing on the set and bullshitting and trying to get your next job. Just do the best you can right now, here, right now, and do the quality work you can, and you will succeed abundantly if you do that. It seems like from what you've told me, is it is it fair and true to say that Joe Blasco really kind of, in so many ways, kind of mentored your career and also kind of your personal life? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, but yes, mainly. <laughs> because, um, I, I mean, I was... I was teaching for him right after I graduated from from his class in May of 1977. June, I was immediately teaching for him. So I was always around him. I was going on jobs with him and just standing back and watching things. And I was a good watcher. What he really loved about me, too, was that I would watch whatever he was doing and emulate it exactly. You know, certain things I wouldn't write, but I would emulate it exactly. And he loved that about me, that I was a quick learner. I was, an, I was a sponge absorbing all of this education that he had and other makeup artists around him had for me. I just wanted to do it. This was my profession. If I'm going to do it, do it. Don't just half-ass do it you know just you, if you're gonna do it do it then if you don't like it try something else you know and i knew from 10 or 11 that i wanted to do this so so and i was around him until about uh probably 83 84 and then we kind of fell out because i left well i left early teaching with him and wanted to go out on my own. Well, they got mad at me for that. But, you know, after that, we came back together. We, you know, and then 
we kind of lost touch in in 83 because I was really into my work and everything and doing my profession and moving up the ladder, you know. And I think I think he as you said, he orchestrated my career those formidable years that I was there in the beginning. So, um yeah, he was my true mentor growing up. You seem like you seem like somebody who's quite big on passing down your knowledge onto other people. And you mentioned how you yourself was a quick learner. Now, this is a really specific question, but it's something that's really personal to me. So, um, so I'm autistic and throughout my whole life, I'd have, I've had like severely bad learning difficulties. And for the longest time of my life, people just thought I was, uh, people just thought I was stupid. And, um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you because, I have it too. I'm all over the place, you know, squirrel. Oh, squirrel. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this, you know. And, and I think that's, I'm fascinated how our minds work, you know, with that. I, I was never diagnosed as that, but I hear where you're coming from. And I'm sorry to. Oh no no mate it's fine I really I'm really it's, it's really nice to hear that from you and it's it's actually inspirational for me to hear that because I know I, that's not something I've read up about you and I don't know if that's public information so and, and may I may I interject I don't know if you've noticed but it works in your advantage mm -hmm. and you can really guide that as you're getting you're 20 years old you can really educate yourself and use that to your advantage because your mind is all over the place once you can focus i bet you once you focus on something you're focused right oh yeah yeah what one thing and you focus that's a really excellent thing but once you finish that move on to the next thing you know well, and that was always and that was always my thing so yeah. for example to kind of go on further to what i was saying i've i I found myself a really, really steady career in, in um in leisure, and I've progressed a lot. And for some of my age, and I'm proud of what I've done. But equally, um, I've had to quit jobs, or I've gone to other jobs and had to go back to other jobs because I was struggling with the training, and there was no support there for me, and they never kind of understood where I was coming from. So I was just kind of wondering, from your standpoint, not just in makeup in the film industry in general, do you think there is enough? Because you know. And rightfully so. This isn't me at all trying to downplay these causes. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, advocacy out there for you know female rights, for gay rights, for black rights, for anybody who's um of any sort of marginalised ethnicity group in the um film or entertainment industry in general. Do you feel like the same is there for people who kind of have dis uh, disabilities or maybe need that extra kind of leg up to get where they need to be? I think there is now. Uh, because everything's prominent to us as a species, I think. I don't know. It's just gotten bigger and bigger, as you've noticed, you know. And I think things are coming to the forefront, a lot of things, you know. And unfortunately, a lot of hate is there with it, which really hurts my soul. Um, and I, I think now there is. But then there wasn't. People just thought, oh, we're not going to work with him. He's all over the place or something like that. But I, I always tried to focus and, and, okay, this is what we need to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Do you have any questions? Let's move on. We've got every, everybody's got something to do. Let's not, I'm not going to belittle something to you. 
you know. And and I think that really worked in my favor because even though I'm all over the place, I go in and I focus on it. And this is what we're going to do. This is what I really want to do. What do you want me to, you know, to make this a better project or to, to make it better? You know, what do you like? What do you not like? You know, let's, let's just talk about this. And, and I think there's a lot of more advocacy for that. And, and, there's a lot of more information, obviously, out there on ADHD, ADD, all of that, and 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 gay life, and et cetera, and, and et cetera. I mean, there's just so much out there because of the internet, good and bad, and you just have to filter through that. I think, and and uh, Hollywood, you know, you wouldn't think, but it's biased to a point. Mm. They they want the job done. You know, you're you're in a circus. You're moving from one job to the next job, which works out great for somebody that's all over the place. You know, I think I think people like. I'm not trying to say you need to be on some sort of spectrum to be the best at your craft, but I feel like oh. the reason why I feel like the reason why some people like like me and you, the reason why we kind of get to where we do in life is because the people who are so kind of high energy and all over the place, they're the most kind of energy driven most passion driven people and that's the kind of people that others kind of hook on to and learn from mm-hmm. you said that one word passion and that's to me that's what it's all about it's all about passion and i've always no matter what i do i love to dj for myself i love to i love music i love music i love uh, the synthesizer i love i've got a whole studio upstairs i've set up i've got my makeup i've got you know i i've got my relationship i've got my life everything i do i have passion about everything you know mm-hmm. i have passion about it i mean come on i mean there's it, life is is a learning process every time you turn around and you don't take advantage of it shame on you shame on you because there's so much out there yeah there's a lot of negative stuff but i've learned in my older age just to shut that out if i find a person and it may sound rude and obnoxious of me but if i find a person that's really down and stuff and i don't really have a vested relationship with them or anything i i'm I'm just gonna move on because life is way too short to try to try to work out somebody else's problems or deal with your own i mean you're dealing with your own problems anyway so don't you know do it in a nice way but I, i i just move on from that i i don't have time for it or patience now I absolutely love that you say that and I think it's so true and my thing is is like you said I used to kind of have a really and I still struggle with it now like I struggle with like negative thoughts and then it gets to me and it makes me so um, uncontrollably angry and upset but um, in terms of that what the kind of somebody one day sat me down and it kind of helped me out a lot and I feel like I've got kind of a similar standpoint to you and they kind of sat me down and they said like you know it's just a good world with bad in and the end of the day, you know, media and people and gossiping, they're only going to tell you like the juicy bad stuff. You're never going to hear about a guy who saves a cat who's stuck up the tree or somebody who paid for somebody's shopping because they didn't have enough money or things like that. And 
like you said, when you shut out all the negativity and you shove it to a side and um, you real and you kind of accept that you're better than that, you kind of open up a world of such positivity. And then with that comes like a fulfilling life and happiness and success. And I feel like it, we're on the it, kind of similar wavelength of positivity always kind of wins. Absolutely, Ben. And it, it actually goes kind of back to a Gandhi-ish uh, ethereal dream state kind of situation in that, you know, close out the negative and just let all the positive in as much as you can. And once you do that, your world will just blossom. I've just actually come to that relationship a realization in the last few months, actually, that I've always been a positive person and very spiritual in a way, not in religion, is, but there's something else out there that gives you and feeds you energy. And if you take advantage of it, you will just, you will just grow. In terms of your makeup career, the thought just kind yeah. of appeared in my head now. Um, with like your career have you ever it's, it's it's an odd question but i'm just kind of curious to hear it from you because you seem like the type of person like you do what you love and you do what makes you happy do you kind of get told like tough jobs you do or do you kind of work on like a contractual basis and do what you know will be fulfilling for you and what make you happy and work with the people that you know will be positive for you well i mean i've always taken whatever job unless i really don't feel good about the producer, money, the project, or whatever. I picked and choose each thing in my career. Sometimes I miss that. If you love what you do and you, you show people that by doing, by just shutting up and doing the work and making, doing the best job you possibly can in life, in, in, your, in your art, and I think it, it, it continues in your life when you do that. And, and it's an extension of your life. And you try to keep everything positive and, and do that. So, but when I started owning a lab, having employees and everything, it was a matter of taking any and every job that came in because I felt obligated to, my, to myself as an artist and to my employees as my artistic, you know, extension, because without them, things can't get, get done. And we would have sometimes six projects at a time. And, and because I'm all over the place, I love that. I was going, I was bouncing from job to job and, and, and I, I, I kind of amaze myself sometimes in that, you, I keep track of every job, every people, person's name on that job, and what job. Now, there was one or couple, a couple of times that I got so burned out and and just exhausted that I would, you know, make the mistake that oh, this is this job, not this job. But um, I loved doing that, and I really realized after department heading shows. And my last one was Natural Born Killers with Oliver Stone. Right after that, I decided, you know what, Matthew? I think I think it's time to break out and and actually open a lab. 
and not department head. Because if I open a lab, I can do five or six jobs at once and not just do one time. So that's why my resume is so huge because I'll go in and do a, a, a couple of bits on this film and then a couple of bits on this television show and then do a stage show or whatever like Wicked. So it, it just gets me interested and creative all the time. Kind of as an employer then, um, what do you kind of look for in terms of the people that you hire? Is it kind of experience and makeup or is it kind of more how you like them and what kind of passion you think they could bring to the role? Uh, yes and no. But at the very beginning, uh, I just accepted everything and it was a learning curve for me. But as I got older and uh, more established, and especially after I won the Academy Award, uh, it, I didn't become picky about the jobs, but the jobs that came in were all high-end jobs. And it, it, it would just set me up to the next level. And then after that, it was the next level, and up and up. And, you know, and, and the adage is so true. You're only good as your last job. And it's so true. You have to up yourself and constantly do that. Now, as a young person, you can do that. As an older person, it becomes harder and harder because been there, done that. And I am so glad where I'm at now because I left, John and I left Hollywood on our own terms. We didn't have to leave. We didn't need the work. It just, I'm burned out. I, I have to stop, you know. And basically, I took three years off, and just to just to re refigure my life and and everything. And I, for those three years, I really felt lost, um, because you know I'd I'd stop makeup, stop going on the set. It was a it was a pardon the phrase, but it was a mind fuck, especially mm -hmm. giving it all up and having to work for somebody and somebody saying no, we don't like this. We want this, you know, D just do it this way. You know, well, they're writing the check. You're going to do what you, th they're going to say. Otherwise you're out and you may not get another job. So you, you have to do, and you have to grow sometimes you have to, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'll do it. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, you know, sorry, I messed up. We'll do it. We'll, 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 we'll correct. It. You know, this wasn't right. Okay. We'll correct it. You know, and sometimes I eat the money, but, uh, now I I don't want to be told what to do. I I I want to do my own thing. After forty years in the industry, it's it's time time that I I moved on, and I felt that you know. And I'm so much better. I I've gone to the next level. <laughs> There's always been levels, you know. You bring up you bring up how you don't like being told what to do, and you don't like the way that kind of sometimes people will talk to you if they want a certain thing. Um, obviously, it's no secret that kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago in the film industry, smaller departments were always kind of just treated like, like, like shit, to be honest. And what was your experience so with, with that? What was your experience with that? Did you kind of get a lot of verbal abuse from producers not getting what they wanted, et cetera, et cetera? Look, it was, it, I think, looking back, I think it was really hard for them to, to reprimand me because they knew that I loved what I did. Everything I did, whether it was a budget whether it was a daily workout of what's going to happen on the set, all the way down to the makeup that I did and everything, the coordinating, they knew, they saw this, you know, 
they saw that I loved what I do. So when, when it came to reprimanding or, or saying something, they were very easy on me. I mean, there were, there were exceptions to that rule, but very oddly, not, not that many. They were very positive because I think if you love what you do and you're, you're passionate about it, people will recognize that and they will take that to heart. If they have back a few minutes in their soul, then they will. Now, sometimes you say this, sell your soul to work in Hollywood. Well, there are a lot of people that do that, you know. And um, I, I think I was very fortunate in that I was positive and, and, and I love what I do. And people saw that and produced all that. So, you know, later in my career, too, it's like, you know, if somebody's saying, oh, we don't like this. And then I was like, OK, let's let's just stop and take a breath. What don't you like about this? And most importantly, what do you like about what I did? So let's be constructive here and not fly off the handle. Nothing's going to happen and you're just going to go all over the place. Same thing with myself. So what do you like? What don't you like? And let's, let's address that. I know, I know you're, I know you're kind of technically retired, but um, I don't know if it's well, public information. So, I'm, so, so I don't know. Um, I don't know whether like this in particular is public information, but um, you, you, uh, so if, if it's not, then I'll cut it out. But um, I just remember you telling me, haven't you just come off of um, haven't you just come off of doing all the prosthetics for oh, no, Wicked? No. And, and so, so that's that's what I'm saying is, is, I, I'm saying I'm retired, but. I, I'm not because look, makeup effects is in my soul. It's in my it's 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 in my heart. I've got to be creative. I've got to have things to do. So I think what really happened, I think what I connected with uh, Al, uh, with Glenn Close on Albert Knobs, and we become um, uh, you know professional friends. And every time she needs a prosthetic, she'll call me. So I've worked on three or four more or five more projects with her after Albert Knobs. And then one of them was Hillbilly Elegy. Well, we got a makeup Oscar nomination for it. And this was after I'd moved here and said I was retired, excuse me, retired. So, so I, I, I would, I would have to take it back that I'm not retired. Let's just say I'm semi retired and it, it's great because now I can pick and choose, really pick and choose what I want to do because I'm working with myself. Yes, right after I got the nomination for Hillbilly Elegy, all at once, makeup artists and producers started calling me and wanting me to do these projects. And I said, okay, well, it's going to cost you this much. And I'm working by myself. They don't need to know that. But, you know, I'll, I'll pull Mike McCracken in from... Hollywood, and he'll come help. Who's my really good friend, by the way, lab friend. Um, and um, so I, I started getting back into it. I think after three years off, three or four years off, it really kind of solidified that now I can move up on up and not have to get a job. I can, I can you know and and ask for as much money as i want because i either i work or i don't work and i don't care 
you know, but uh, I'm doing my own thing right now. So uh, I got through with uh, last year that led into, I'm sorry, right after the Academy Award that led into uh, we got that nomination that led into um, Black Adam, White Noise, The Menu, all these films that I started working on doing doing some makeup effects, mainly for Deborah Lamia Denever, who's my oldest friend, makeup artist friend. And she's still working on on shows and stuff. So she brought me in to do that. But I I said, here are my terms. I only make things here and I send them out. I don't come to the set anymore because I don't want that pressure in my life. And they go, okay, great. That's no problem. We'll find Bye. somebody to why is it you don't go out to set now? Is it just something you don't enjoy anymore? Or do you end up finding yourself getting ringed into things? Or Look, I love doing the makeup and, and seeing my Frankenstein side come out, Frankenstein's monster, and seeing the monster come out. You know, it's you're, you're judged, and I never like to be judged. I, I mean, I love what I do. And yes, I can improve on what I do, of course. And people's input is good as long as it's positive. But once it starts becoming negative and the, the, the voice is being raised, it just, I start to shut down as a human being. I just, I, I cannot stand that. If a producer screams at me about my makeup because I'm so passionate about what I do, that becomes, and it's always been like that. I just shut down. I just go, okay, great. And I'll put my assistant on the set and I'll just walk away. I'll, I'll stay there, but I'll just shut down. I just, it's so demeaning to me that somebody would do that. You know? Have you ever walked out? Have you ever walked out or walked out of a job or quit a job because you were getting ne abuse from somebody? Never, never. Never once in your career? Never, never. I always took it and did it because I knew that if I didn't, somebody on the set's going to talk and I'm going to lose a job. So I never did walk out. I would change things the best I could on the set, you know, and that's one of the reasons Oliver Stone loved me is I was a quick thinker on my feet on the set. And I, I he'd asked me to do something and uh, something that's not planned. I would go one second and I'd walk around the corner. I'd go, shit, shit. How am I going to do this? God damn it. Oh my God. Think, 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 think. And it just like immediately it come to my mind. Okay. Walk back. No problem. Got it handled. This is what we're going to do. What, exactly. What do you want it to look like? Perfect. Like for instance, Robert Downey Jr. on Natural World Killers, he wanted his ear shot up. Well, it wasn't in the script, you know, and I go, oh, how am I going to do this? Okay. I have a little foam uh, prosthetic that I put on ties. Tom Sizemore, God rest his soul, uh, to make his nose uh, broken. I took that, I tore it in half. I placed one piece up here, one piece down here. I put a little blood gel in between it. The ear shot off. It's immediate. You know, it took me 10 minutes to do that. You know, and he just loves that, that he can throw things out. Let's do this. Let's do that. I love it. I love the process of making a film. So, so when... I'm called out on something or not necessarily called out. Maybe that's not the word. It, it infuriates me. So I'm not going to put myself into that situation now, just like with people that are negative. I'm just not going to go there. You know, sometimes you have to, to progress your profession, but 
at the age I'm at and where I'm at, I don't have to put up with that. You know. Are you kind of because you're such a legend in your craft and doing it for so long? Are you kind of known as like um kind of I'll I'll fix it, Matthew? Like, do you often get phone calls from like friends in the makeup to on like on set like in a panic because they can't do something and then you can just I'll talk them through it. I love doing that. You know, sometimes I go, okay, Matthew Mungle, what's your credit card number? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I am such, I must say, to toot my horn, I'm a, a wealth of information about makeup effects. And you know who was big on that and taught me well on that was Joe Blasco. He was a quick thinker. He said, let's do this. This is going to you know, never cut anything out of your mind. Everything is nowadays. It's all silicone. It's all perfect. It's got to be. And there are times. Yes. Most of the time it has to be because of the digital cameras and, and all of that. But, there are times for foam latex. There are times for gelatin. There are times for silicone. So never shut your mind down to what is in your head and that you know will work. Now, if it's foam latex and you can substitute silicone for it, the better. But a zombie, it's all paint. Use foam latex. It's cheaper, too. It's it's a matter of adapting yourself and moving and making those split second decisions that the producers, the directors love about a makeup artist. On this. Something I discussed with you on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and then you had so much to say about it there and then. I was kind of curious to bring it up here. Um, kind of, I just want to talk about the Academy for a bit. So, kind of, in terms of the makeup nominees and the winners that you see. If you, I, I know that obviously you're probably friends with most people like in these um in this industry, but what kind of do you make of how the academy view makeup? Because I've spoken to a few makeup artists before, and they all have very different things to say. And the most common criticism I hear is that they don't have a lot of respect for subtle makeup. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, that's a sore subject. Yes, absolutely. They go with the obvious. Why do you think we won? Uh, we lost for Schindler's List uh, uh, opposed to Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, that was a great job. Neil did a wonderful job. But what? I mean, Schindler's List, they had no idea what we did. Those ball caps that they're women, oh, you shaved their head. No, we didn't. Those were ball caps. Those were wigs. There was a lot of uh, thought and 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 research that went into the testing that went into those ball caps because one we were shooting we were shooting in black and white nobody done that you know in years i mean young frankenstein great but a lace front and not to see a wrinkle in the back for ball caps never been done before so Maybe we didn't get the word out there or or a producer's son voted on Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, it's obvious. You know, it's a moneymaker. You know, it is. It, I, it is it's always the obvious. Well, go ahead. It, it, it is always the obvious, though. You are, I'll let you finish. I'm sorry of cutting you off, but it is always the obvious. I mean, going right down to like. I, I'm not. Of... 
look, I was one. It was wonderful to get nominated for Schindler's List. I mean, to dwell on that, and and also goes to Mississippi, and I lost against Rick Baker for Nutty Professor. There you go. It's the obvious, you know, and and et cetera, et cetera. Hillbilly Elegy, Albert Nobbs, you know, obviously, but. I would rather be a makeup artist that an audience member, when I talk to them and say, I did that, that movie. Well, what did you do? Oh, I did uh Glenn Close's makeup, you know? Oh my God, that was Glenn Close. I had no idea. Oh my God, that was great. You know, they had no idea what I did. Mm-hmm. When I say a nose on her, I put ears. There were little plumpers in the back to put ears out there. You know, she wanted to look that way, like this, like this real person that lived. So thank God for actors like that want to do that, because I thrive with that these days. I love to do that, you know, and I'm not given enough chances to do that because, uh, you know, it it just passed me by. You know, I, I'm I'm where I'm at, so. For something like He'll Be Energy, because you work on so many projects, but a lot of the time, I don't know why, you, if like, even if it was to be an Academy Award nominated, make uh, an Academy Award nominee for makeup, you wouldn't be a part of that lineup. For He'll Be Energy, how come you are a part of that lineup? Because as soon as Glenn Close signed the papers to do that show, and knew she was going to do that character. I was the first call that she made, besides uh, Marcial Carnival for her wig, I was the first call to do that she made. And she said, Matthew, I've got this character. Let me send you a picture. I'm, I'm thinking that we need to do something with nose and stuff like that, and maybe ears, lobes or something. And I, and I said, okay, I'll call you back. So she sent me the picture. I looked at I said, you know, to myself, I said, I'm seeing, and I go, I've learned so many, after so many years, to go with my first instinct on a makeup or how to do something. Because your first instinct is always, I would say 99.9% of the time, correct. If you have, if you have that knowledge of everything, it's correct. And it was, I said, you need bigger ears. You need a nose tip that goes on the side because you need a larger nose here. We're not going to do anything with your teeth. And she said, I don't want to wear any makeup. I said, that's exactly what I want to do. I want you as natural as possible. I don't want you, just like Albert Nobbs, I don't want you to have any makeup on. We're going to embellish what you have, you know, because she's she's got a lot of freckles. And we're going to embellish that and make them older. And your wig and everything, she said, it's great. So I said, let me let me do some sculpts. You know, I send her pictures. And uh, I think within two or three weeks, I had made the pieces. Uh, and so I arranged with the production, which wasn't even up then. They were just get gearing up, you know, Ron, Ron Howard and all the production people. I said, uh, I, I need to go to New York and meet with uh, Glenn and do a makeup test for you and uh, just to make sure everything's okay and if we need to change anything so i i got on a flight i was there for maybe two hours flew to her uh, went to her house 
did the makeup we we were just like uh, okay i know i know what i need to change i took really close pictures of it i even took the materials to do another nose cast ear cast which you know years since i'd done one and I, i knew that i wanted to change it after we did the first test so we did the first test we did the only test that i and luckily, Ron Howard lived down the street from her in New York, in uh, upstate New York. So he came over, and as soon as he walked in, he said, oh, I mean, that's that look is great. Because she had a wig that she put on. She had some glasses that looked kind of like her. And and she had an unlit cigarette. You know, she was she she became that character once that everything was on. She said, we became that Karen. And I said, Ron, we're going to, we're going to, you know, kind of, kind of make this better here. going to make this better. I can see what I need to do better. And he said, great. It's perfect. It's perfect. So uh, then I heard that Aaron uh, Kruger, Mikash was going to do, be the department head and apply uh, Glenn's makeup. And I was so relieved because I love Aaron. She's an amazing makeup artist prosthetic makeup artist etc etc mold maker etc and i was just so relieved that she was going to be on the show and i sent her the piece i sent my test i kind of outlined what we were doing the first test she did was just spot on of course every every test after that she did one more test was even better so it was a perfect storm to tell you the truth, but that's how I get involved is nowadays is with Glenn at the very beginning. As soon as she accepts the character, she'll call me. And I just love that. And we just have a great working relationship. Tell you that story in length. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. It's all good. Um, And with Erin Metcash, I remember meeting her along with you and, uh, I think it was Patricia Dehania a few years ago. I can see why you two work so well together because you're both so like high energy and like kind of like what we talked about earlier on. Like you're just so both passion driven about everything. Well, it, I, I think it's also old school. Mm. Not back to that, but I'm sorry, but I kind of see makeup artists today and see what they're doing. And it's beautiful stuff when you're, when you're first coming out and just doing it on your own and beautiful stuff. But can you reproduce that on the set every day and even make it better and not change it and do it every day? And most of the time, or even do it on the set and get along with people. Most of the time, man, it doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen at all. And it's like, you've got to be an all around person, uh, a therapist, to your actors you've got to know your shit going into it and i just don't see that today i mean there's one or two people that i see but it 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 hurts me you know because you know when we came up aaron and i and and all the other makeup artists that came up in this the late 70s early 80s you have to do your best job there because it was film. There was no digital work that could be done on it. You had to make it look good. Plus, your DP had to light it well. 
So that's the that's the school of hard knocks right there. These these guys today can change it in digital after you finish and you not even know about. It. You mentioned how kind of makeup artists what they're doing now isn't saying to what they used to do. So by that, do you mean that they're doing kind of minimal effort on the makeup, knowing that it can be rectified in After Effects, or what, you, what, what do you mean by that? Sometimes, sometimes it's very lax, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know that much about it, but things that I've seen, you know, Marvel movies, I mean, there's so much digital work that you do a three quarters of a makeup or a half a makeup and they'll take it digitally and continue from there. Now, that's still using our craft. But what craft is it if it doesn't look exactly the way you applied it and meant it to be? and worked with the DP with the lighting and the shading and the use of, well, we don't shoot it here. We shoot it. Here. Oh, we'll, we'll fix it in post. And I would say probably 60 per even more, 80% of the time they don't. For a, for like a huge franchise, like Marvel, like James Bond, Star Wars, could you ever see yourself working on one of those projects in the next few years? Never, never. It's just too much for me. I mean, at the beginning, I loved monsters and stuff, and I tried my hand at doing monsters and stuff. It just wasn't my thing. So I decided it wasn't my thing, and I decided to go with more realistic makeups, old ages, uh, changing a, a person's appearance with the nose, their ears, the minimal we can get away with, yet changing them as much as we can. To me, that was more of an art than throwing blood on something or making a monster that you don't anatomically. Yeah, sometimes it has to be right. But I mean, there's so much, so much leeway with, you know, with with a natural makeup. There is no leeway. because It has to be it has to look realistic, you know. So to me, that's harder to do than a monster or a blood effect or, you know, a character makeup is harder to do than all of those. Earlier on, I don't know if you remember, you told me to remind you of a couple of stories about, like, a, of a couple of books that you brought when you were a child. Okay, so, Richard Corson book. Richard Corson stage makeup book. So, I, um, I in, in about 1999, I, was, I got a phone call from a... a, a Professor Professor Jim Glavin, and he was here in Austin teaching at the UT at University of Texas uh, in the theater department. He'd teach makeup, and he was an all-around kind of costume makeup uh, professor. He said, I've been taxed, tasked with the job of redoing the Richard Corson book as an addition. This was my Bible growing up. Are you kidding? This is a dream come to even have my name in this book so i helped him with that i did a few blurbs in there another issue came out a few years later he says i want you to do more we're doing a color section in the back three four years ago he i said he contacted me i said interesting that you call because john and i are moving to a Austin, he goes, oh my God, how, how, how great is that? I'm redoing the Richard Corson book for stage makeup. And it'll probably be my last time to do it because they wanted the whole book in color. 
except for some of the black and white pictures that were there in the beginning. I said, please sign me up, give me a minimal stuff for uh, minimal money for this and this. And I ended up doing maybe eight or nine, maybe 10 sections in the new book. And it was all in color. And it was so much fun to do that because I love putting books together and step-by-steps and teaching and passing on my knowledge to people that really want to hear this and really love to do this. Um, novices and stuff like that, I'll talk to them on the surface about it. But if you really want to do makeup and love to do makeup effects and makeup and really know it's for you and you have a passion for it, I'm in there a hundred percent. So I love doing that. And, and my name is in print. It'll always be there. And it, it's, it's a, it's a positive thing, you know, it's a positive thing. Was there something else that I think there was, there was another one. I can't remember for the life of what it was. Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. So, this may be a little tell-all and something that that kind of eats away at me uh, sometimes. But, you know, I met Rick Baker, summer of 77, right after he did Star Wars. He went back and did uh, pickups on Star Wars and inserted more stuff in the cantina and stuff like that. I met him, moved out to Hollywood. You know, we I, I kind of saw him the first time I went out there and would talk to him every once in a while. Well, years went by. We never did talk. We never did see each other. And here's his career. And mine constantly was just was just growing. And then a few years later, I got a nomination for Mississippi, and I was up against Rick Baker. Well, that was interesting because I started out, you know, as this little kid in – meeting him after Star Wars, and then all at once, I'm there with him in the Academy Awards. <laughs> We're both nominated. So there was a little bit of animosity, not on my part. I was I was glad to be there, you know, against him, I think, that, oh, my God, what? You're here now? You know, so it was it was very, very interesting at that point uh and all a lot of people say be careful of who your your idols that you mean meet because they're never like you want them to be and uh it's very interesting <laughs> dot 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 period 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 into that story <laughs> does does that happen to you often then where like you meet people who are like you idolize and then you're just like devastated by how they kind of turned out to be uh, most of the time, sometimes not, you know, I just try not to idolize anybody anymore. I mean, there are make, there are like, let, let, for instance, working on CSI one day, you know, we read in the, the, the script, you know, this guy's dead. Well, they cast David Cassidy and I had a crush on David. <laughs> David <laughs> Cassidy. Well, here I am, you know, 50 years old and working on CSI, and he comes into the makeup trailer. We do his makeup and everything, and the guy, Clinton Wayne, that I was working with, David David uh, Casty, is it, that it? Great. He was really nice to us and very sweet. 
he left and he said, Clinton said, I have never seen you so gobsmacked with somebody in, in your career. I said, you don't understand. I grew up watching him on television and idolizing him as a kid. So I may have not shown it, but we talked about the Partridge family. We talked about his career and stuff. So it was pretty awesome to meet him, you know. And there there have been quite a few like that throughout my career, like like um, um, like uh, William Friedkin. I mean, uh, the, the exorcist scared the shit out of me. And because Dick Smith did the makeup, that was even better. And then William Friedkin, so when he would start telling uh, stories on the set about the exorcist, and we were cutting it together, and we thought we were going to be laughed out of the industry because it was just so bizarre, you know, I'm sitting back there in inner little child going, oh my God, oh my God, he's talking about the exorcist. You know, so <laughs> crazy geeking out, baby. I was squid town. You know, so it was it. It's been a rocky, but a wonderful career. I must say, it's just been. I knock on wood every time I think about it. Uh, last thing, um, something <laughs> I never knew about you until I saw it. I, um, and you're gonna know what I'm talking about when, like, I kind of build it up. So I was on the early morning one day. I live in the UK. It's about a year <laughs> ago now. He already knows. <laughs> And I walk in my kitchen, and then my mum is, and she's like, you see what's on the TV right now? And there you are on, on this morning talking to Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby, talk, holding a dildo, talking about prosthetic penises. And I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> well, you know. What is that all about, Matt? That, okay. So the first thing we did was testicles for stepbrothers. And that was in... I've even got a list of it here. See? Look at that. All the penises I've done. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. With um, Harold and Kumar, and then the next one was stepbrothers. And we had to make testicles for Mr. Will Farrell to rub on the drum set of, of John C. Riley, And that started it all, all at once, you know, things would come about. And the next thing we did was Little Britain, USA. And that was so fun working with Matt and David. It was amazing. They're, they're amazing, you know, actors, comedians. But to do, have to do those body suits where they were workout, but, but they had really small really, really tiny little penises was pretty fun. I mean, it was hilarious. I mean, we'd have, I'd have to put a wire in it and have it grow on the set. So I'd have to go down and kneel down under mat and kind of bend it up. So it looked erect, you know, and it <laughs> off. And every time I did red rocket and then all at once, Pam and, Tommy came out. I didn't do that. All at once, the rage was penises, penises here and there. So I started getting all these calls for it, and I'm very reasonable because I have stock pieces. So that the BBC or wherever it was on, call me or email me. Said, "We can we interview you? We want to send somebody out to do a live feed." 
And I said, okay, well, I had no idea that we'd have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and do it. I thought I was done with the set. I thought it was going to say, you value your, you value your sleep. I was, that must've been like your worst nightmare. Well, I, I'm a morning person, but that's early morning. So I had to get up at three, meet the guy here at, at four or three thirty, And, you know, the, 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 the broadcast went on at five or five fifteen AM in the morning here. That was, that was hilarious. I think by that time I'd given about 10 interviews on penises. It's oh like, God. Hey, let's first set the record straight. I don't, this is not my main thing. Okay. I'm a makeup artist. Then how, Look, then I, how come are you having people come on, come, come to, to you about penises? It's, it's so random. Because we, I did all these shows with penises, you know, and I had molds. It's just, and it just, started blossoming or you know growing so to speak in <laughs> oh my god so like when designing yeah. the mold for an actor for a penis like do, do you have to like take proportion of theirs or stick it on or can you just make a fresh one or like what's that all about you make a fresh one and i never ask for them back because they're there you know so <laughs> anyway I don't, mean, I don't yeah i don't you want it back well, most most of the molds that I have are sculpted. I have really talented sculptors. When I was uh, in LA, had a lab sculpted some beautiful, you know, sculptures of penises and stuff. And uh, um, and most of them are sculptures. I would say the majority of them are. And uh, I, I just so many molds that I think I get calls on them. It's kind of dwindled off in the last. Uh, year or so the last one i did was this summer and there were just i had to make maybe seven penises ranging from three inches 10 inches you know so have you so it, do you do you strictly do it just for like film and tv then or do you do it for like actors who are going on stage or no just film and television i've gotten calls from a lot of people and i, I feel so bad about them you know i've got a very small penis or no penis just got shot off you know, <laughs> does that does that actually I, happen and to that not, not my kind of thing i only do for film and television i'm so sorry are these like, are these celebrities are these celebrities that call you be like can you give me a big penis? Oh, <laughs> no i don't have a celebrity to call me i would, no, I would these, have like a these are real people that live in the world. I would, I would have like, I would have like a list of all like the small penises in Hollywood. And if anyone ever like wrongs me, I'm like right, leaking that to the leak it to the press. I have a list of the penises I done. <laughs> oh yeah, little Brent. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Oh. Fair enough. Every <laughs> when that comes out, I'll be sure to watch it and. Uh... Yes, yeah, I'm not supposed to tell it. I, I won't say any more about that. <laughs> oh, oh, um, I'll censor that part. Don't you worry. I'll stay between us. Censor that part um, until put it in. <laughs> do you like? Do you ever get people then calling you, being like, as a joke, can you make like a prosthetic penis for my friend to give him for his birthday? Or no, it's like in Halloween. I love Halloween. Halloween, as I always said, is Halloween year round for me. So yes, I enjoy Halloween, but. It, it's it's for a makeup artist, <laughs> you know. Fair enough. All right. Well, 
I think that's me done here, Matt, mate. But seriously, it's been amazing talking to you and get to learn as much to have about you. And honestly, just I know you're time sensitive too. So thank you so much for coming onto the show. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm sorry I lost it there. You got a sense. You got you got a sense of me more than anybody ever has on an interview. There, little 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 emotional. So uh, you uh, must must. Um, uh, Tick that off your box.